in the movie Over the Hedge. Now, this does not qualify as a spoiler alert since the movie's been out since 2006. Uh, we have all had plenty of time and opportunity to see this movie, and if you haven't seen the movie, then uh, tough luck. And there's also too much to explain the reasons for the happenings of the scene that I'm about to explain to you. So just hold tight. But in this scene, you have two of the main characters. You have RJ the raccoon and Vern the turtle, and they're rocketing in the air with a uh, wagon load of food and a uh, propane tank that has exploded and is sending them into the sky and a patio umbrella. And once they reach uh, the, the peak of their height and start to fall down to earth, they're about at commercial airline height, as you remember a plane flies by. They're coming down, they grab the umbrella, and as they're floating down, the potato chips catch fire and start to ascend back up and, of course, burn the umbrella. And you love cartoon world because all time and everything freezes. They didn't immediately fall. You know, you had that split second time where they're kind of defying gravity and standing there. Well, the turtle looks at the raccoon, who the turtle is the victim of all that is happening, and the raccoon is, is the perpetrator of all that's happening. And the turtle looks at the raccoon and says, you're the devil. And then they fall, and, and, and the movie continues on. Nobody, nobody gets hurt in, in the cartoon movie. Okay. It's a funny scene, and, you know, today's society uses the same insult in kind of a tug-in-cheek way, don't they? When you go back to uh, black and white movies, for instance, uh, our culture today is not the only one who's guilty of this, but you go to black and white movies and you have a mischievous little child, you almost certainly have an adult or two who says, you little devil, Right? And then you also, you know, maybe you're getting piled on by your friends and they're laughing uncontrollably and you just kind of look at them and you say, you're the devil. Or maybe in Melissa and Mai's case, a few years ago, we got a newly acquired puppy and we came home, we found baseboards that were chewed up, sheetrock that was chewed up and a door that was half gone. I almost promise you, I looked at that dog and said, you are the devil. And so in our passage this morning, though, we have Jesus using this statement or this accusation in a not-so-tongue-in-cheek way. As he is speaking to the Jews, he tells them, you are of your father, the devil. Now let that sink in for a moment. You are a people who, if there were any nation over the centuries that had legitimate intimate personal experiences with the one true God, it was the Israelites. If there were any nation that when it came to maybe jumping through all the necessary hoops to worship the one true God, you were that nation. Not to mention that, you know, in your genealogy you had heavyweights like Abraham, Moses, David, you had the prophets. And wasn't it through Moses that God said in Exodus 4, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And wasn't it through Jeremiah that God said in Jeremiah 31, 
With weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So it must have been quite a shock, right? It must have been quite a shock to the Jews for Jesus to not only say that Abraham was not their father, but God was also not their father. So what did Jesus mean, or what was his purpose for telling the Jews that they were of their father, the devil? And the way we're going to answer this question is in the categories of pedigrees. Since we're talking about fathers and sons, we're going to use the term pedigree. So the first point here, number one, is this. We're going to look at the worthless pedigree. In verse 37, Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Now, Jesus does not ever contradict himself. Some things may require greater investigation, but that investigation will always lead to the conclusion that Jesus never contradicts himself. So he, in this case, is not contradicting himself when he says in verse 37, I know that you're offspring of Abraham. And then later in verse 39, he says, if you were Abraham's children. So what Jesus is basically unpacking for them and for us in in kind of the big picture of eternity, heaven and hell, those kinds of issues, there is really only one pedigree that counts. And the first pedigree he introduces us to is this worthless pedigree. The Jews had a lot of stock in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. In this chapter of John, we saw last week that they connected their freedom to being offspring of Abraham in verse 33. It says, they answered him, the Jews answered Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, regardless of the fact that the Israelites were slaves to every major nation over the last hundred or so years. We're talking about Babylon, yes, Rome, yes, Egypt, yes. Regardless of that fact, the Jews were missing the point that Jesus was speaking of a spiritual slavery rather than a physical one. So he says in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. <coughs> and so Jesus is carrying over this idea of spiritual slavery, spiritual freedom into our passage this morning. When he says in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, <coughs> excuse me, he could very easily have added the side comment of, and it really doesn't matter when it comes to spiritual slavery. It's basically saying don't have confidence in your physical pedigree with Abraham because it is a worthless pedigree in regards to slavery to sin. And John the Baptist, interestingly enough, kind of confirms this idea. He shares it very well in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, when he says, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Excuse me for just a moment. <coughs> It's better to get choked up on the choke-up moments, but, uh, you know, sometimes you just can't resist that. Um, 
So folks, a person is not freed from sin by putting their trust in a descendant who happens to be another sinner, right? We have Abraham and so we're free, and that's not true because Abraham was not free. So they must have, you know, said, you know, what am, what am I going to call this? You know, the, the necessary pedigree would be the second thing that they need to have, okay? And so they had the, 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 the credentials as far as the physical lineage, but there was a different pedigree they needed to have, and they needed to have the necessary pedigree. Point number two, Jesus is saying there is more to being a child of Abraham. He was saying that if you want a pedigree that actually means something, then you must have what I've seen described as a spiritual or moral pedigree with Abraham. Jesus said in verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And what were the works that Abraham did? Well, it's very simple. The first thing Abraham did was Abraham listened when God spoke. How many of you as parents, your children listen to you first time all of the time? How many of you when you were children listened to your parents first time all the time? And we can go, you know, down the rabbit trail there, but uh, you know, the rabbit hole or whatever, but, but that's the point, you know, Abraham almost every single time when God spoke listened. But not only did he listen, the second thing Abraham did was Abraham believed when he heard and obeyed. And again, parents, how many of your children listen? They hear you, but they don't necessarily obey. They don't necessarily believe what you said to them. Well, Abraham in this situation always believed what he heard and he obeyed. Think about it, the command to pack up your family and go to a land that the Lord would show you was not met with kind of a come again, excuse me, A, it was not met with, you know, is, is, you know, packing up a metaphor for something else, God? No, Genesis 12 verse 4 says, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And you can imagine the conversations. Why are we packing these boxes, mommy or daddy or something like that? Or, you know, or why are we putting the camel out? You know, that sort of thing. And he says, we're, we're going to a land. Really? What land? I don't know. I think it's northwest. There really is no bigger way. Excuse me, I'm lost my notes, I'll go back. And the Jews, you know, uh, kind of addressing that, that Jesus was speaking to in this situation, the Jews that Jesus was speaking to um, did the exact opposite, opposite of this, right? They did the exact opposite of what Abraham would have done. Verse 40 says, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You know, folks, there's really no bigger way to show you're not willing to listen to and obey the message someone is giving you than the desire to kill them. I mean, that's a pretty sure sign you don't want to have anything to do with that person if you want to kill them, right? So here comes Jesus from God, delivering God's message, and they want to kill him. That is not what Abraham would have done. And so the necessary pedigree is to be a child of Abraham, yes, 
but you are a child because you imitate his faith, not because you have a percentage of his DNA. You see what Abraham did in regards to God, and you said, I will believe when I see what God says. I will do what God says when I see what God says, when I hear what God says. But the Jews would have none of it, and the reasons they would have none of it really in reality is because they really had kind of this third pedigree that we're looking at. And the third pedigree is they had what is known as a deadly pedigree. So verse 38 says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. The Jews were listening to a message. It's not like uh, only the followers of Yahweh or the followers of Jesus were the ones who listened to a message and the others were kind of morally neutral. <clears throat> not at all. The, the Jews were listening to a message. They were believing it. They were obeying it. It was a message from their father. And who was their father? Well, Jesus says in verse 44, <coughs> you are of your father, the devil. Thank you, Chris. You are of your father, the devil. So why would having the devil as your father be a deadly pedigree? Kind of a no-brainer answer necessarily, but let's look at specifics in our passage here. Number one is this, you do not love the Lord Jesus. In verse 41, Jesus says, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born from sexual immorality. Doesn't that seem odd as an answer? Doesn't that seem kind of bizarre? Well, the majority of commentaries basically said that this insult that the Jews threw Jesus' way were probably referring to kind of the dubious details involving Jesus' birth. There's a possibility they're referring to some kind of Samaritan thing, but that was only one commentary. Most of them said they're probably referring to Jesus' birth, and that <coughs> basically since Jesus was not Joseph's true son, he was born of sexual immorality. But just kind of at face value, if they love Jesus, let's just, let's just take the argument in and of itself. If they love Jesus, it could have been if they loved Mark or if they loved, you know, somebody else. If they loved a person and more importantly, loved what he taught, if information like this came out, you would think they would have investigated whether it was true or not, right? And by investigating, they probably would have gone to the source and said, hey, Jesus, we kind of heard some of these details about your birth. What's going on? We don't want to wreck your ministry. We love what you're doing here. We don't want your ministry wrecked. We don't want your reputation uh, soiled or anything like that. Can you please tell us about this? And Jesus said, well, sure, you know, and he shares with them the information. But they did not do that. They weaponized the information to try and discredit the truth of what Jesus was saying. If his birth was illegitimate, then his message was, was illegitimate as well. And by attempting to do this, they were proving they did not love Jesus. And now they state that if they had any true father, it was God. In verse 41, they say, we have one God, or we have one father, even God. Now, why did they do this? Because they said, you know, Abraham was their father, and, and Jesus shot that idea right out of the sky, didn't he? Surely they could not, surely this Jesus could not refute 
that God was their father. Because pointed out, as we pointed out earlier in Exodus and in Jeremiah, you know, God specifically talks about Israel being his son. But Jesus shoots that down. And he does it in a similar way. Remember when he said they were not children of Abraham because they did not do the things Abraham did? Well, the same goes for God. Jesus says in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. The Jews would have loved the Lord Jesus Christ because he came from God, but also because God is love, right? In other words, Jesus is not only saying, because I came from God, and if you really love God, then you would love me. He's also saying, hey, God is love. You would love anyone. You would think twice before saying something like insulting the way I was born. So proving that they did not love Jesus, and therefore, by implication, did not love God, Jesus exposed them as the hypocrites that they were. I'm having a wonderful sermon time, folks. I'm missing a page. (laughs) Let's pray. Good night. (laughs) I'm missing a page in my notes. I prayed before my sermon. I said, Lord, whatever you wish to pull out of me on this, then, uh, and and this was not what I was expecting. Okay. We're going to go to point number two. Point number two. You will not, this is point number two of this, uh, Why would having the devil as your father be a deadly pedigree? Okay, point number two. You will not understand or hear the Lord's message. If you are of your father, the devil, you will not understand or hear the Lord's message. Verse 43 says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. That word understand basically means to gain knowledge. But the key term is this, you cannot bear, which basically means uh, it's the the Greek word, the negation of ou, is omicron, upsilon, ou, which basically means absolute and total negation, and then it's the word for ability, dunameo. So it's the idea you are not even able to listen to what I have to say here. It's not a kind of a, yeah, they could really understand what Jesus is saying here if they really tried. That's not the situation here. He's basically saying, you are not able to understand or listen to what I have to say. A person who has the devil as their father is unable to hear or receive the life-giving message of Jesus. And Jesus affirms this later on in verses 46 and 47. He says, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And again, not being able to hear the message from the author of life is to be hopelessly bent on death and destruction. Point number three. To have the devil as your father is to live a life that flows from his character.
Jesus paints a bleak picture of what life looks like. In verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So let's, let's progress that out. The fact is, Jesus stating here, you are of your father, the devil. And then he goes on to the motivation for living, and that is, your will is to do your father's desires. And what are your father's desires? It says that he was a murderer and he was a liar from the very beginning. Murderer probably referring to Adam and Eve and his destroying their spiritual lives. So where do these desires come from? It says his character. It says there is no truth in him. And it says, and when he speaks lies, he speaks them out of his own character. And so a a life that believes in lies and delights in sin will do nothing less when it comes to living that lie. It is a life that is bent on pleasing its father, just like a Christian's life is bent on pleasing the father. And, it's a, and, and, and in the case of the father being Satan, the father is a murderer from the very beginning. All right, let's, let's land this plane. Let's look at some takeaways. Three things. Number one, for the unbeliever, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you might be thinking, wow, it's heavy. I mean, Jesus just painted a pretty bleak picture for me, didn't he? I think I am being called a child of the devil and that I can't understand or obey his word. And that's true. But you are not without hope. Remember, Jesus also said in John 8 and verse 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What's keeping you from believing that Jesus is who he says he is? Verses 31 and 32 in that chapter say, so Jesus said to the Jews, you uh, who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and, if you, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, why does someone need to be set free? Could it be that they're in chains? Could it be that they're in a place they ought not be? Could it be that they're in a place that, you know, unless they're reveling in their sin, if they want out. There's a possibility of being set free here. It says, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Cling to the truth. Cry out for the truth. You say, well, we can't understand the truth of what you just said. Well, then cry out to Christ and ask him to open your eyes to the truth. John eight thirty six. he says, so if the, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And though Jesus is giving the reasons for why people continually reject him, he is not saying it is hopeless for those who have rejected him. 
but I have to say, please quit rejecting him. Do what Abraham did. Hear the words of the Lord. Believe them. Do them. What did we say earlier? Treasure them. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then it goes on to say in verses 10 and 11, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God, uh, to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's a bunch of words that basically say, you're an enemy. If you're an unbeliever, you do not know Christ. You are an enemy of God. Congratulations. You're in the room full of a bunch of pardoned enemies. And through Christ, you are able to be pardoned. And I love Colossians 1, 13 through 14. This should give everyone immense hope. The Apostle Paul says, he, God, or Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we're talking about two kingdoms here, and you are citizens, aka children of the devil, while you are in his kingdom. But Jesus, by His great grace and mercy, if you cry out to Him, will reach down and transfer, which literally means transplant, will pluck you out of that kingdom and put you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Earlier in the week, I went to Robbie and I said, do you think Jesus was dooming these people for life by saying, the devil is your father? And that's it. I don't think so. It's really not a ton of evidence for that in there. Point number two, takeaway. For the believer, continue in or get involved in the miracle of evangelism. Continue in or get involved in the miracle of evangelism. Say, what do you mean by the miracle of evangelism? Well, a miracle is where God comes in, often breaking the laws of nature and accomplishing something that is absolutely impossible for man to do. It's a good definition of a miracle. God comes in, often breaking the laws of nature and accomplishing something that is absolutely impossible for man to do. So this week, let me challenge everyone in the room that knows the Lord Jesus Christ. This week, share the gospel with someone, not out of obligation. Nobody likes, you know, oh, I have to do this. Do you know Jesus? Not out of, not out of obligation, but, but because you might be able to witness a miracle. That person might not come to Christ. God has his purposes. And I would say stick with that person regardless of their response. But if they come to Christ, it is not because of your great oratory skills. They come to Christ because, this sermon is proof for that, they, they, they come to Christ because God comes in, breaks the laws of nature, and He accomplishes something that is absolutely impossible for us to do. And as you sit there maybe with that person this week, and they finally kind of bow the knee to Christ, you can see them kind of crumble, letting go of their pride, and they say, yes, I need that. And they give themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have seen 
a miracle. So let's see some miracles this week. And then finally, number three. Rejoice in such a great salvation. It's never done out of spite or, or meanness, I don't think, but generally in, in church we relegate the miracles to the healings, maybe to the, the fixed broken relationships or something like that. We generally just say, you know, there's Brother Joe and he had cancer and he was, you know, dead man walking and boom, he went to the, his last doctor's appointment, and it's not a sign of cancer in his body. What a miracle. Man, I, Joe is a recipient of a miracle. I, I wish I was, or maybe, you know, I, I would love for something like that. Maybe not the, the sickness, but the results would be amazing, and, and those kinds of things. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, Joe was a recipient of a miracle. Praise God. Amen. It is a beautiful thing when God heals. Or God fixes life that we can't fix. But we have all been recipients of a miracle, haven't we? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, there's the uh, obligatory sermon illustration that sometimes happens where there's a, a, a funeral and there's the open casket situation out here and the florist comes in early to put some floor, flowers around and they put one here kind of up on the pulpit and they accidentally knock it off and it hits the body. And the florist kind of gets shocked because here is this person who just looks like they're asleep and they don't flinch. They don't respond to a a potted plant landing on them. Folks, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not mostly dead, which means slightly alive, but you know, know, the movie quote, quoting movies all over the place, but, but not mostly dead, not partially dead, not able to kind of respond with our 5% and God comes in with his 95. We have been the recipients of a miracle. We ought to leave this place rejoicing if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, because God broke into our lives, blew apart the laws of nature, dead person alive, and did something we could not do ourselves. So we should rejoice in such a great salvation. I love how the mercies and salvation of the Lord causes a situation as bleak as you are of your father, the devil. But you don't have to stay that way. That is an amazing thing to think about. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will just Use the time we had together to study your word to be 
challenged first and foremost, Lord, to share this powerful message that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And Lord, if you see fit in your kindness and in your love for us, help us potentially even this week to see a miracle of a dead soul becoming alive in Jesus. Lord, help us to fathom as best as we know how, Lord, because it's, it's just so deep, so broad, so amazing. The, the miracle that was given to us, may we rejoice in our great salvation. And Lord, I pray specifically for those in our congregation this morning. I pray, oh God, that if they do not know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray for those outside of our congregation. We have family members, we have co-workers, we have friends who do not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray and ask, oh God, that you will do a miracle and that you would save them. Let them live no longer in the kingdom of darkness. Let them no longer call the devil their father. I pray and ask, Lord, that you would save them. I pray that this morning the people who are here who have heard the gospel, who have heard your word, who have heard that as enemies of the cross of Christ, they do not have to stay that way. I pray that they would immediately go to someone they know who knows the Lord or even to a total stranger who's sitting right next to them in a pew. And just say, I need to know this God. I need to know this Jesus. I need to serve him. I need to be out of the kingdom of darkness. I need to no longer have at the basis of my motivation for living deceit and destruction. God, I pray that you would save them today. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.